It's the summer of 1720 in India. William Upton, commander of the East India Company's Bombay fleet, docks at the harbor by Bombay Castle. There's the usual hauling of cargo and hustling merchants trying to make a trade with passers-by. But Upton cuts a path straight through the crowded docks. No citizen wants to approach him. He commands intimidating power. His fleet consists of four gurabs, Indian-constructed galleys, and a few smaller vessels, in total carrying a thousand men. But as Upton approaches the castle flying the red and white stripes of the company ensign, he feels like an imposter, sweating more than usual in the sultry tropical heat of Bombay. He's about to report to the governor about how he's failed his duties. Two company guards swing open the lofty gate to the castle and escort Upton through the town hall and inside the governor's residence. Here he is taken through hallways decorated with a precious collection of carpets, paintings and exquisitely carved doors. The salt-brined seaman feels out of place. Finally, he makes it before the governor of Bombay, Charles Boone, who pounds his fist upon his desk and demands an explanation. Boone has caught wind of rumors about Upton's actions and wants to know the full story. Earlier this year, the Commodore was commissioned to attack a fort on the Malabar coast. Upton admits that not only did he fail to seize the stronghold, but that on his way home, he came across two pirate ships. As a naval commander for the company, Upton has a responsibility to protect their trade routes, as well as those of their allies and partners, from potential threats. In particular, English pirates based in Madagascar. Upton fled the pirates like a coward. It's one thing to lose in battle, but to flee altogether is an unforgivable act. Governor Boone rises from his seat to deliver a stirring speech to the rueful-looking Commodore. There will be no more looking the other way. The threat of piracy must be extinguished for good. No more will they prey on wealthy pilgrims or rich traders. The company will take the fight to the pirates. The wheels of power are turning. It happened in Nassau, and it will happen here too. The slap of the governor's palm crashing down on the desk serves to underline his zeal and his displeasure. Not only has Upton failed his commission, but he's brought shame to the crown and the company. He is stripped of his command and summarily dismissed. Meanwhile, the governor writes a desperate letter addressed to one James McRae, a modest man, but one of his most dedicated sea captains. The message is simple. Take command of the Bombay fleet 
and kill these damn pirates. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It's late 1719, and Edward England aboard the Royal James is flanked by his Lieutenant John Taylor in the victory. Together, they sail down the coast of West Africa. They've just fled the island of Annabon, where England's pirates burnt down a village after the locals resisted them. Over a year ago, this eager-eyed pirate captain had visions of repeating the glory of piracy from the Caribbean in a new part of the world. West Africa and the Indian Ocean. So far, this plan has failed. England's greatest challenge has been controlling his crew's wild, often murderous impulses. 
From indigenous peoples to captured merchant crews, England's pirates have left a trail of death and destruction in their wake, staining the Atlantic waters blood red. As captain, Edward England may have absolute leadership in battle, but a pirate ship favors democracy. Simply put, the captain serves at the pleasure of his crew, even if that crew is wrong. So far, substantial prizes have been in short supply, and the crew are growing frustrated. And when England's crew are frustrated, it rarely ends well. The captain hopes a change of course might improve their fortunes. He prepares to put forth a vote. He summons the council, and on the deck of the James, they hold a debate on their next course. England proposes they attack Portuguese Goa on the western coast of India and makes his case. But a member of his crew makes a counter-argument and suggests another heading. Soon other dissenting voices are speaking up. Stay in West Africa, make for Brazil, travel to the Red Sea. England's crew are split on where to proceed. Following pirate code, the decision is put down to a vote. But with the amount of conflicting suggestions, the men only agree to proceed generally southward. It's not uncommon for a captain's wishes to fall on deaf ears, or for rank-and-file pirates to overrule their commander. But it does illustrate Edward England's waning influence among his men. Dr. Manishag Pal is a cultural historian and an authority on pirates it's been two months and there have been no ships and you're getting hungry or you want to go to the Red Sea but your men are tired and they want to kick it up on shore. And so captains get outvoted all the time. And we see this more and more in the declining years of the Golden Age. This happens with England, what, three times? He gets voted down and then marooned and picked up and voted down again. It's a very common story and it's something that it happens to England but he's hardly unique. England sails south in the Royal James. It's not a new course of action. From Southern Africa, one can still turn west with the trade winds and head for the Americas, or otherwise continue around the Cape towards India. England prefers the latter, following the legendary pirate round, exactly as Thomas Tew and Henry Avery had done 25 years ago. They're still thinking about these old legends, which, you know, at this point in time were, you know, every hadn't been heard of in decades. But his legend, if anything, was bigger. You know, there was a stage play out about him, like a nice little musical number about how he had this empire going and he has a son, he's trying to, to set up the dynasty and, and all of this. So that legend is still very much current and probably was still giving people ideas. The solution to England's problem appears naturally. The answer is the same as it was for those legends of the past. England's men need a base to rest and operate from. Where better than on the island that inspired Nassau in the first place? Madagascar. It might not be the pirate's stronghold of the 1690s, but there are still plenty of friendly faces to be found there. People with names like Abraham Samuels, John Crow, my favorite John Plantain, who are, have backgrounds in piracy and are kind of hanging out. And now they're not maybe being pirates themselves, but they are dealing in enslaved prisoners with pirates. They're also supplying them with food and drink, giving them safe places to careen, often for a price, dealing in information and all of these things. So 
there is a network that pirates can turn to. And in fact, if you want to go to the Red Sea, you have to stop somewhere. Like, the, you know, ships just couldn't go fast enough to get there without fresh supplies and, and generally without making some major repairs. And so Madagascar is this key stopping place. By early 1720, the pirates arrive in Madagascar. It provides a perfect opportunity for England's men to rest and quell their recent frustration. In the meantime, England recruits pirates from old crews and uses their knowledge of the area to better plan future raids. Like so many before him, he dreams of Asian riches, which he knows will help win back the support of his men. But things have changed since the times of Henry Avery and Thomas Tew. Mughal treasure ships and Ottoman traders may still carry rich cargoes, but catching them won't be so easy. Not only are the vessels themselves better defended, but these nations are now even more vital to Britain's interests. That is, the East India Company's interests, and therefore fall under its protection. One of the things that every kickstarted was the East India Company deciding that pirates really were not the thing. And the East India Company had quite a powerful lobby back in London. And so you've got a more difficult circumstance here because they're using convoys now. They've got ships protecting their merchants out there. Nobody wants to go through the PR nightmare that she and every had kicked up again. Although, you know, sometimes that would happen because we do have people attacking Red Sea um, pilgrim ships and merchant ships. But there's just generally like a less hospitable environment in the Red Sea. It's, it's not likely anybody's going to hit that second jackpot. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd and How He Changed Piracy Forever. At this point in the 18th century, the East India Company is much more prepared to fight pirates than they had been before. They had kind of upped the amount of defenses they had throughout the Indian Ocean. They had managed to develop a better relationship with a lot of Mughal traders there, and they had much better knowledge of the seas. It's spring of 1720. England captures a new 34-gun flagship in the Indian Ocean, abandoning the Royal James. Tipping his hat to his legendary predecessor and broadcasting his piratical intentions, he renames it after Henry Avery's own warship, the Fancy. Allegedly, England even tries to seek out the remains of Avery's crew near Madagascar, but to little success. Nonetheless, the Fancy alone now boasts a crew of nearly 200 men, a motley mix of Europeans, indigenous Americans, and enslaved Africans either captured or liberated from slaving vessels or colonial plantations. With England on his new flagship along with Taylor on the 36-gun victory, the pirates begin to raid Indian shipping lanes. Reliving the legends of old, England may finally be on the cusp of greatness. They make instant gains and the crew's spirits are lifted, but still they yearn for that one spectacular prize that will secure their futures. Nearing summer in 1720, the pirates get their first clear warning of how times have changed. Near the Comoros Islands, they encounter the East India Company's Bombay fleet. Four heavily armed ships commanded by Captain William Upton. 
The vessels are all country ships, Indian-constructed galleys common on the Malabar coast with combined European rigging and Indian hulls with pointed bows. Edward England stands on the quarterdeck of the Fancy and raises his spyglass. He inspects the fleet and counts their cannons. The pirates are outnumbered and he suspects outgunned. His men anxiously await his orders. It's another test of his leadership. But as England eyes the company fleet through his spyglass, he senses their hesitation. England decides to see what these merchants are made of. In a bold move, he gives the order to run up the black flag. The skull and bones are barely unfurled before Commodore Upton and his fleet react. Instead of rolling out their guns, they turn tail and flee. Amongst the cheering of his crew, Edward England gulps a sigh of relief. He knows well how close an encounter they've had. What he doesn't know is that this small victory will be the trigger for something far worse to come. Commodore Upton travels to Bombay, where Governor Charles Boone strips him of his command. Enter Captain James McRae. The new Commodore is a force to be reckoned with. The 44-year-old Scotsman is a self-made man with a cast-iron constitution. The son of a washerwoman, as a boy he escaped poverty and starvation by fleeing to India and seeking a career in the company's service. More importantly, and perhaps in contrast to Edward England, this veteran seafarer commands a fiercely loyal crew. Unlike most merchant or naval ships of the era, where sailors are often abused and miserably exploited, McRae respects his men, and in return, they revere him. As a result, they're more than prepared to do battle with a rabble of scurvy pirates. On the 17th of August, 1720, England and Taylor sail around the small island of Joanna off the west coast of Madagascar, a natural choke point in the Mozambique Channel and a favorite ambush spot for pirates. It's early morning when they spot a small fleet in the distance. Two man-o'-wars and a Dutch merchantman. Once again, the pirates are heavily outnumbered. But as England spies the ship, he makes out its flag. Red and white stripes with the British Union flag in the canton. The flag of the East India Company. Whether buoyed by his previous experience or just desperate to capture a rich prize, England follows his gut and once again runs out the Jolly Roger. But McRae isn't going anywhere. By 8 a.m., the pirates and the Bombay fleet stand off across the stretch of water. Due to the light winds, England's fancy and Taylor's victory cruise at a painfully slow speed an interminable, awkward plodding towards battle. Throughout the day, they close the gap, little by little. Now in plain sight of the East India men, England raises another flag. A blood-red banner unfurls from the foredeck, the maritime signal of no mercy. 
there'll be no quarter given and none wanted in return. England wants the fear to sink in the heart of his enemies. And to a degree, it works. On the other side of the confrontation, on the deck of his flagship, the 26-gun Cassandra, stands Captain James McRae. Viewing the pirate flags through his eyeglass has done nothing to deter him. If it weren't for the lack of wind, he'd already be upon them, letting loose a broadside. For now, he orders the captain of his consort, the Greenwich, to stand by. Both fleets sit nearly motionless, becalmed. The wait goes on for hours, whilst the tension builds. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Finally, four and a half hours later at 12.30 p.m., the Greenwich and the Dutchman catch a breeze and turn with the wind only to flee the battle. Enraged, McRae opens fire on his retreating consorts, challenging them to return to the fight. But neither ship does. McRae snarls at the cowards and decides he will have to take the two pirate ships himself. Lucky for McRae, his crew will back him to the hilt. A great cheer goes up for their captain as they prepare to stand their ground. So McRae initially was, was at least allegedly like kind of hunting for the pirates and was thinking it would be great for the company if he could sort of eliminate that threat. And then when they came across it, it turned out they had bit off more than he could chew. But his position was that his original plan would have worked if the men who were supposed to stand with him had stood by him instead of panicking and fleeing. Meanwhile, John Taylor's victory has cruised ahead of England on the fancy. On his own, he suddenly catches himself in the worst position possible, with his bow facing McRae's broadside. The Cassandra's guns penetrate the victory, piercing the hull. Below deck, an explosion of deadly splinters fills the air, puncturing the darkness with sudden shafts of light, followed by a flood of frigid seawater. Taylor's pirates are in trouble. As his men run to pump out the water, Taylor is forced to call off his attack. Barking commands, he is left seething with rage at having been bested by a smaller ship, and perhaps a better commander. On board the Fancy, England devises a plan whilst he's removed from the action. With McRae focused on attacking the victory, 
England spies an opportunity to board the Cassandra. He launches two rowboats, packed with a squadron of men, hoping to slide up alongside and surprise the company crew. It's a bold move, one that nearly pays off. The pirates get within a stone's throw of the Cassandra when a company crewman sounds the alarm. McRae rapidly fires off orders to his men to ready the swivel guns with grape shot, tiny metal balls packed inside a canvas bag. But the pirates are also nearly within firing range. Pistols are drawn, and muskets take aim, targeting the Cassandra's gunners. But they're not close enough. Aboard the Cassandra, the well-drilled crew work quickly. The rammer plunges a bag of powder down the muzzle of the gun, followed by the packed metal shards, before lighting the fuse. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. The pirates are eviscerated. Aboard the Fancy, England curses, his face flushing red. But McRae isn't given time to ram home his advantage. Taylor has patched up the leaking victory for the time being, and now enters the fray. She rolls out her cannons and swings around to face the Cassandra. With the wind picking up, England too gives the order for full speed ahead. The skirmish is over. Now, the real battle begins. By 4 p.m., over three hours of relentless barrage have gone by. It's become a bloody war of attrition. The three battered vessels continue to circle one another off the shore of Joanna Island. McRae has given his all. Choking and squinting through the acrid gun smoke, all he sees are wounded men bleeding out across the decks. The Fancy is now nearly a cable's length away from his ship and in broadside position. With no other option, McRae makes a drastic decision. He gives the order to run the ship aground. Taylor's leaking vessel is still drawing too much water to follow. But England hastily pursues McRae, and in doing so, he too runs the fancy aground. Stranded as both ships are, the firefight recommences. By 5 p.m., the cannon fire finally dies down. Nearly a hundred pirates have been killed. Many more are wounded. The waters are so clouded with smoke and debris that Edward England can barely make out if the Cassandra is still there. He finally orders his men to cease fire. Aside from the groans of the wounded, nothing stirs. As the pirates row their boats over and board the Cassandra, they find it abandoned. Aside from three casualties who have been left behind, and the bodies of 13 dead sailors. The pirates interrogate and execute the three injured men. They confirm McRae and his crew have fled ashore. England should be pleased with the prize. They've captured the powerful Cassandra along with 75,000 pounds worth of goods. But it's not enough. The pirates want McRae. By 7 p.m., James McRae and his crew 
find themselves 25 miles inland. They are exhausted and close to collapse. It's a miracle they've made it this far. 24 of McRae's men are wounded, including himself, after taking a musket ball to the head. As the sun sets, the beaten sailors take refuge with a community of indigenous people who treat them hospitably. But 10 days later, the pirates are still searching the island. Rumor has it they've even put a 10,000 pound bounty on McRae's head. With no alternative options and no supplies, McRae sees no way out. The Commodore finally surrenders to the pirates. They're hiding in the woods for a oh, good 10 days and then decide that they're very hungry and, you know, flea-bitten and maybe we can all be reasonable beings. And so they head back to the pirate ship and tell England they'd like to talk about this <laughs> and couldn't there be a way out of it. And so the pirates invite them aboard and agree to parlay. Captain McRae is ushered aboard the Victory, where England and his men have taken rest since the fancy ran aground. The Scotsman is lifted aboard and immediately recognized by many of the pirates, a number of them having served under him previously. But this strange reunion is cut short by a furious mob, led by John Taylor. England's second-in-command wants to burn the Cassandra along with its captain. After all, he is responsible for the deaths of dozens of their pirate brethren. The angry pirates circle around McRae, taunting and jeering, pistol and blades at the ready. When something unexpected happens, a deep, booming voice silences the rabble. The crowd parts for a giant of a man with a heavily scarred face and a wooden leg to step forward. McCray must imagine he now faces his executioner. But to everyone's surprise, he takes McCray by the hand, raises it in the air, and declares him to be a good man and an honest fellow. The crew are stunned. No doubt, so is McCray. The giant isn't the only man who speaks up. There are a number of former crewmen amongst the pirates who agree. There's this inquiry into what kind of commander McRae had been, and apparently a number of men on board the pirate ship had formerly sailed with McRae and stood up and said, no, he always treated me well. He was a good officer, a gentleman, and a sailor. And while this is by no means universal, there are a lot of incidents where a captain would be better or worse treated based on the reports of their men. So there is maybe an ideological basis to how pirates treat their prisoners going on as well. Just as England's men handled Captain Skinner, enemy captains are dealt with based on their treatment of men under their command. But pirate convention also dictates that anyone resisting a pirate attack must suffer the consequences and McRae put up quite a resistance. In these battles, they had lost 90 men from their own ship, the Fancy, and they wanted to have McRae killed as a way to avenge all of these losses. England is once again caught in the middle. His crew looked to him for a decision. England admires McRae's bravery and recognizes his eventual surrender. He does what he sees as the honorable thing, 
and promises his safety. But for many, including John Taylor, it's an outrage. The pirates flew the red flag, meaning no mercy. Yet here they are about to let McRae go. It's a betrayal. The crew remains split on how to proceed. So England creates an ultimatum. Kill McRae and England says he will quit the company. And England apparently had to threaten to quit, basically, and say, no, I feel really strongly about this. If you want me to continue being the captain, you have to give me my way here. But the way the anecdote unfolds is just so interesting because England can't just give the order. He has to basically use emotional blackmail and get people to give him his way because he thinks it's right. But in having to sort of stoop to an ultimatum, he loses a lot of his authority in that moment. The bickering on deck falls silent. Despite their ups and downs, many of the pirates are reluctant to let their captain go, especially after their defiant stand together. But Taylor is equally reluctant to back down. McRae continues to sweat as the debate over his fate continues. As night falls, the discussion is paused for the crew to celebrate their victory with an abundance of local rum. Eventually, England manages to convince his intoxicated quartermaster Taylor to accept his judgment on McRae. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The next day, Edward England declares they will spare James McRae and do right by his surviving crew. It's the honorable thing to do. England exchanges the Cassandra for the badly damaged fancy. He even returns some of their less valuable cargo. A decision that doesn't sit well with many of the crew. England at this point in time, having decided that he was following this, this gentleman code, listened to it and was able to persuade the men to spare McRae. And moreover, was extremely generous in that they gave them the fancy and giving him some of his cargo back, but not everybody thought they should have done that. Although it may be the gentlemanly thing to do, England's decision perhaps illustrates a changing attitude amongst pirates of how to treat their victims especially well-paid merchant captains. There also seems to be a growing tension over who really holds the power on board a pirate ship, as well as accentuating the social differences between captain and crew. These are issues that are becoming more and more pronounced. England is extending courtesy to someone that he identifies or would like to identify as a social equal. 
right? He's, by virtue of being a pirate captain, being courteous to another captain. And his men don't like that. And piracy is supposed to be more democratic. And he, you know, he sort of uses emotional blackmail to get his way here. So one way of reading that is that his crew is being perhaps more ideological history from below and wants to cut down these commanding officers. But England has sympathy with them because he's also part of the hierarchy. Aside from his personal moral convictions, it's also possible England is doing his best to follow the model of other great pirate captains. What I would love to think is maybe England, who's been lured to the Red Sea by the legend of like Henry Every, is thinking he wants a legendary status too someday. And so he's making these grand gestures because that's the sort of thing that builds a legend. And maybe he wants McCrae to go back with, you know, stories of how well he was treated and how gentlemanly Captain England was. Whatever England's true motivations, it appears they are his alone and not in keeping with the collective ideology of his crew. In doing that, he's also setting himself apart from the men who've elected him. And that's where everything kind of falls apart. On the 3rd of September, 1720, the pirates depart in the victory and their newly captured ship, the Cassandra, leaving behind McCrae and his crew in the heavily damaged fancy, along with a gift of 129 bales of the company's cloth. Upon repairing the ship, McCrae sails for Bombay. By the time he reaches India, he is half-starved, near dead, and no doubt concerned about the governor's reaction to his defeat. But he's given a hero's welcome. He sort of, you know, sent this letter ahead of time explaining this very harrowing journey and how he'd sort of stood up for the reputation of England and the East India Company and, and made a good fight and come out of it pretty well. And it ended up really being ultimately quite good for his reputation. You might expect him to have gotten into a lot of trouble for losing his ship, but he didn't and, and ultimately was rewarded with a governorship. So it's a case, uh, weirdly, where an encounter with a gentleman pirate ends up being kind of advantageous for a colonial officer's career. But despite making it out alive, not every survivor of the Cassandra is treated the same as McRae. Richard Lazenby, the carpenter's mate, is taken as a prisoner by John Taylor aboard the Victory. So if Edward England let Captain James McRae go, why did John Taylor take Richard Lazenby, the second mate of the Cassandra? This was likely done as pretty much a consolation prize. The crew is absolutely furious about Edward England letting McRae go. So this is kind of a way for John Taylor to prove, I'm not someone who's going to be so lenient like Edward England is. I'm going to be taking a much hard-nosed stand. With the battle behind them, England's crew sail on in the Indian Ocean. But it's not long before the tensions resurface. England and Taylor capture a small ship near Koshin in southern India. The pirates interrogate the crew and make a shocking discovery. There is a rumor that Captain James McRae, hero of the Cassandra, is gathering a new fleet to return and hunt them down. Needless to say, the pirates are enraged. And of course, they quickly turn on the one person who is to blame, Edward England. Back aboard England's ship, a vote is held about what to do with the captain. 
England fiercely defends his actions and his honor. Those sailors still loyal to him try to rally support, while those crewmen who also vouch for McRae likely keep their heads down. But the writing's on the wall, and this mutiny has been a long time coming. When Edward England refused to actually take Captain McRae as a prisoner, this was kind of the last straw for the crew who had just lost 90 men. And they all collectively felt that Edward England was not fulfilling his duties as a captain. And so they used that as their excuse to be able to oust them. So Edward England only could have so much control. The crew did follow orders. They had to. But if needed, or if the crew unanimously decided to, then they could go against what Edward wanted. January 1721. Edward England and three other men, including the peg-legged giant, are marooned on the island of Mauritius. They are given a keg of water and a pistol with a single bullet, forced to scavenge for their survival. On that first night, it's easy to imagine England slumped despondent against a palm tree, staring out at the setting sun, his belly growling. He has all the time in the world to ponder where it all went wrong. Is he humiliated, outraged, vengeful? Maybe he's even a little relieved. We'll never know. Some say after several months in Mauritius, the pirates build a small boat out of scrap wood and sail to St. Augustine's Bay in Madagascar. Rumor has it he finally succeeds in locating the surviving crew of Henry Avery, where he lives out his days, if not his dreams, before eventually succumbing to a tropical disease. Truth be told, it's unknown what happens to Edward England. Despite failing to control his crew, England still has an impressive career as a pirate. He captured over 50 merchant vessels throughout his tenure as captain, and is one of the few to successfully engage a heavy-armed opponent in open water. Not a job for the faint-hearted. The legend we are left with is that of a gifted seaman and tactician, as well as a gentleman, merciful, a man of honor, but it's this social status, one that's shared by many commanders, that worked so well for Blackbeard, Benjamin Hornigold, and Henry Jennings, that proved to be his undoing. And I think with England, it's a good example of how this can cut both ways, that what was an advantage to him and made him popular also kind of made him prone to overreaching, misjudging the level of kind of unshakable loyalty he had with his men and ultimately to him getting voted down. I think, you know, if there's a cautionary tale with England, it's that he was maybe more concerned with how McRae would think of him than with how Taylor would think of him. And if he wanted to remain in power, he should have done the equation the other way around. In this late golden age of piracy, only the most desperate seaman seeks a living on the account. Piracy is taking on a more ideological shape, one that empowers the collective body of the crew and makes class distinctions more pronounced. The real power lies below decks. It'll take captains of extraordinary character and more than a little luck to succeed in this new era. 
as we'll soon see. Next time on Real Pirates, we switch back to the Caribbean to see how another ex-Nassau crew will forge a path in this new era. None other than Howell Davis, the young Welshman who resisted the siren call of piracy and the temptation to join Edward England's crew. Since that meeting, the thought has become more appealing. But it'll take more than courage and grit to cut it as a pirate captain these days. Luckily, Davis has a few tricks up his sleeve. Find out next time on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Bexon. Written by Aman Khalid. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Mixmaster by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.